you will, turn back in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20, we will be meditating upon a good portion of these verses as we consider a principle that was once our New Year's theme a few years back. Arise, move, and go is what we are. Humility before honor is precisely where we are. Solomon said it twice because he knew something about this axiomatic principle. He knew to be honored cannot rightfully occur for any of us apart from humility. That humility and honor is summed up in the person of Jesus, is it not? Except you and I be humbled, we will never know honor. And this is where our days are right now. A lot of people don't understand what's happening. It's called humility. People ask me, is what's going on in the Middle East about Jacob and Esau? And I say, no. It's about Cain and Abel. Let me see if I can help you as I lay a foundation. You can narrow your lens if you want to and be trapped by a distraction called ethnocentricity. Or you can broaden your lens and understand that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for humanity across all human ethnic groups. And when you broaden your lens large enough to understand that really what we're dealing with is Cain and Abel, then you can detach ethnicity and understand all people groups everywhere in the world are having the same problem. Now you can get your historiography right and your sociology and therefore your psychology and therefore your theology. Because Cain and Abel represent us all. And there are men and women every day either crying or rejoicing in a broken world where they've been lied to. That everything is about them. That's the goal of the enemy. To get you to think this is about us. This is how you create the Hatfields and the McCoys. Two worms thinking that they're better than others. And your Bible has clearly said there's none righteous. That's Jew and Gentile. That's Palestinian and Israelite. That's Caucasians and Africans. That's Asians and Europeans. Everybody across the spectrum is wrapped up in this evil net. And when you get that lens right, you can understand who's lying to you and who's telling you the truth. Today, we're going to be looking at something of the same nature, and it really has to do with transition. Transition. So I want to lay a foundation because, you know, there's a lot in our text that we obviously cannot peruse totally and thoroughly in a, in a, in a sermon time like this. But understand that we have come into the 40th year for Israel, 40 years now. So you and I are looking at 38 messages, are we not? We are in the 33rd encampment according to Numbers chapter 33, okay, around verse 16. We're in the 33rd encampment. That means we have about six to seven more encampments to go before Israel realizes what God had told them was true. Y'all keeping up with me? Remember, we're dealing with 42 encampments. Sorry, like, yeah, 11 encampments to go. We're dealing with 42 encampments. And we're actually at the brink of the promised land geographically to, uh, in, in terms of topogra- topography right now, because Israel is in the land of Moab. 
And Moab is right up against the promised land. And this is really important. Let me see if I can put a prophetic word here to help you understand. Whenever you're getting close to the promise that God has provided for you, that's when the enemy is going to work out the most to stop you from actually apprehending what God has called you to. Whenever you are right up on the premise, right up on the precipice of blessing, he's going to distract you. But also God is going to challenge you. You must know that. I mean, if if you know anything about the ministry of the Lord Jesus, his fiercest battle was two hours before he was taken captive. Y'all hearing what I'm saying? So there's a lot of lot of blessing and 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 struggle and mystery and 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 complexity going on with where we are in the world today. Blessing and struggle, mystery and complexity with where we are today. But when the people of God know that they have a God who is leading them by the hand, as God was leading Israel by the hand, no matter how difficult, opaque, troubling, complex, contradictory, problematic things are on the horizontal, what you should know by faith is that you're drawing nearer to the promises of God because he can't lie, fail, or change. And the only reason you miss that is because you're too wrapped up in Fox and CNN. When your news channel should be from Genesis to Revelation. And so what we're dealing with in our account is a transition. What do I mean by that? You can tell by our subpoints. Subpoint one, the death of the what? Matriarch. Subpoint two, the delusion of the patriarchs. And then our third point will be an elucidation of what the real redemptive implications are for both. In chapter uh, 20 of Numbers, we are right up on the brink of the transition point because we are in the 39th year, 40th year of Israel's sojourn. Remember, God said 40 years, didn't he? And they were already two years in. And he said 20 years old and up, everybody's going to what? Die. That means if our numbers are right, the 38 year period that we have just went through could only have as its maximal age in terms of the aggregate whole of Israel is 20 years old. Right. So I know you've been to government school, but here it goes. 20 plus 38. Y'all got it. That's the maximum age of the people right now, with the exception of four people, with the exception of four. And they all are going to, with the exception of two, going to die this year. So let me help you. Miriam is going to die. In fact, she already has. We got to talk about her. In a few months, guess what? Aaron is going to die. That's the end of our chapter. And in a few months after Aaron, Moses is gone. So I want you to get the order because there's theology in death like there's theology in life. Miriam is going to go first, then Aaron, and then who? Right. So the children of Israel that are presently under the supervision and government of the leadership is about to lose their senior administrative state. Did that come home? And the people that are under that senior administrative state is both in a fortunate way 
visibly and physically and mentally capable of the transition that's about to take place because they're not old and decrepit. They're not stuck in their ways and physically challenged. They're not riddled through with anger and vitriol because they'd rather have it the way of Egypt. Did y'all hear what I just stated? So what God has done is taken out the old guard because the old guard cannot climb this last hill that is needed. You need young people for that. Now, I've told us this many, many times when God is going to do a great work. All he wants old people to do is pray and get out the way. (laughs) With the exception of a few who may have the spirit of faith. Because God generally works to break through with young people. The glory of the young person is his strength. The glory of the old person is his gray hair. If you have any. And it's their ability to remember and to advise and to call young people to humility as they ascend to honor. Hence our text. Humility before honor. And so the children of Israel are in a real twixt here. I got to lay this foundation. On the one hand, they have been occupying a journey through the desert for which over 42 encampments, they've had to circle back, circle back two or three or four times because the distance between Egypt and Palestine is not that far. Y'all know that. And so they've had to wander in the Sinai desert for almost 40 years. That means they were going in circles and God will take you in circles in order for you to get the lesson back there so when he moves you forward again, you can take something you learn going forward. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You can complain with God and, 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 you know, really opine about the reason why you're not moving forward, but he knows you can't move forward until you get what happened yesterday. And so the children of Israel have done now a long journey with a bunch of old people, and guess what? Those old people have left a legacy of complaining. That's all they've left. And so what's emerging in the children of Israel right now, as we're about to see, is the epigenetic and sociological influence of a household that knows how to complain more than pray. So when it's their turn, guess what is a sort of ipso facto default? Complaining. This is why I tell young people when they get married, I say, now you got to be really careful, young people, because you're getting ready to marry her mama. And you're getting ready to marry his daddy. And you got, y'all got to make sure y'all know the difference between you and them. Because them going to show up in y'all. If you're not careful to work out your salvation in fear and trembling and make a distinction between you and them as God is calling you to. Because otherwise, the only thing you're going to be at 60, 70, 80 years old is them. That's what our text is teaching us right now. But don't fear because these same young people are about to go through a change. Now, they got to change, but what's going to require their change is the change of the old guard. Did y'all hear what I just stated? They're going to get a new guard in a minute. And this new guard is actually young enough to help them press forward, understanding who they are. And so these young people are going to enter into a lengthy period of triumph and victory and success under new leadership. Yeshua, Joshua, who will be for them a great type of Jesus. 
bringing them into the promise. But right now we're dealing with transition, are we not? And transition is going to require humility. That means death. We use that word transition as a euphemism for death, don't we? He's transitioning. She's transitioning. We're some funny people, aren't we? <laughs> you know, we, it can get used the wrong way. Here, I think it's questionable. But we are. When we die, we transition from here to glory or hell, right? So we are transitioning. And we are seeing in our text a really grievous account, you guys, around the nature of transitioning because all of the outward circumstances are pretty bleak. They're pretty uh, difficult. Let's see if we can work this out. Notice what we have in the opening verses over in verse uh, one, two and three. In fact, I'm going to make my way to four. And they came, the children of Israel came, even the whole congregation to the desert of Zin in the first month. And the people abode in Kadesh. Miriam died there and was buried there. Going to deal with that in a moment. And there was no water for the congregation. That's a predicament, isn't it? Boy, I could land right there and make some real applications as to where you and I are today. The only reason you and I don't have any water at any time is because of ignorance, not because of absence of water. The only reason that we would have some kind of drought that would endanger our lives is because of ignorance and disobedience. The earth is full of water. Either you are ignorant or there are powers governing your life that keep you from having access to that water. Now, the children of Israel are doing something that I think is apropos, although you have to put parameters around it. You know what that is? Legitimately complaining. They're complaining about a circumstance and a predicament because, like I told you, they don't know anything else. The mom and daddy taught them to shout, scream and argue anytime, you know, you get an ouchie. And so that's what they're doing. But let's let's actually derive a fundamental virtue out of raising your voice. There are some people who never raise their voice, so they're never heard. And as a consequence, they grow up extremely broken, don't they? Because they never raise their voice to let people know that they were uncomfortable or threatened. Now, you and I are operating in a limbic system that either moves us into fight, fright, or flight mode when we're in trouble. Would you agree with that? That is not an amoral thing. You can raise your voice when you stub your toe. You can raise your voice when your belly is hungry. You can raise your voice when some injustice is taking place. The only reason you don't want to raise your voice if it's just automatic because it's something you don't like. But you can raise your voice certainly when you are in danger of not having enough water to live. Am I making some sense? Now, the children of Israel are raising their voice and Moses will hear them. Good for them. Good for them, because this is going to set up an aspect of the transition point. Look at verse verse uh, two. And there was no water for the congregation and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. There it is, like parent, like children. See it? It's important to get. And the people chode with Moses and spoke, saying, would God that we had died. Here it is when our brethren died before the Lord. What are they talking about? All the people that died in the wilderness. They sound just like them, right? Going all the way back to the initial exit from Egypt into the wilderness. Remember that? But guess what? They also knew that when you have a problem with your government, you let them know. That'll come home in a moment. That'll come home in a moment. The word of the Lord is right and all of his works are done and true. When people scream loud enough, your leaders will hear you. 
Otherwise, they will say, you know what? We can put all kind of undue pressure on them. We can take everything we want to from them. We can put them under all kind of pressures and they we won't hear a peep from them. Did that come home? Right. They expect you to stay quiet. But if you've been taught that it's worse to keep your mouth shut than to open your mouth and say something's wrong here. Then you and I will suffer the continued tyranny of being misled. And so at least these children of God are learning how to cry out and they're coming to the right person because Moses is the man. Problem is, Moses is old now. And Aaron is older. And Miriam is dead. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like our present administration? <laughs> I love God's word, don't you? <laughs> Who, you can't make this up. Is why we believe God's word is eternal truth. It'll catch up with you. It'll catch up with you. And the truth will catch up with our government. When old people try to hold on to power too long because they want to hide something. All right, let's start with our text because I, I, I don't want to hold you too long, but I want you to get it. Point number one, the death of the matriarch. And of course, the text opens up with this because it's important to get. When the children of Israel came into a more formidable area in the desert, the desert of Zin, not the desert of sin. I'm not going to break that down. We are closer to the promised land. We are not further back. We are not deeper south as we were in the uh, Sinai Peninsula. We're up on the brink of crossing over into Palestine, technically speaking. OK, where Jericho would be. God knows how he's leading his people. But we'll start right here. The death of the matriarch. It opens up saying. In the latter part of verse one, really a simple, subtle, quiet, short, terse statement. And Miriam died there and was buried. Do you see that? Now, that's quite curious on a number of levels. First and foremost, Miriam is a very significant person in the family tree of the nation of Israel and in the history of their deliverance from Egypt. This little terse statement gives certain inferences around Miriam's faux pas, the mistakes that she made, for which at the end of her life, we're not getting that much recording. Now, you can attribute this to you if you want to, like male uh, chauvinistic misogyny or, you know, godless patriarchy. But the reality is, is that the text said she died there and they buried her. Now, y'all should know every major patriarch, when they're buried, are honored in their burial. And they're honored at length, whether male or female. And if the people loved you, they would be mourning for you. They would be showing their grievance. They would be showing their, their, their brokenness, their sense of loss, would they not? For example, I'm going to give you an example here as we develop it. Do you know in the same chapter, at the end of the chapter, it speaks about Aaron. Look with me over at verse 28. And Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar, his son. And Aaron, what? Died there in the top of the mount. And Moses and Eleazar came down from the mount. Now, if that was the end of the chapter, I would go, same thing happened to Aaron that happened to Miriam. But no. Look at your next verse. It says, and when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, they mourned for Aaron for 30 days. 
even all the house of Israel. That is a necessary marked distinction because that's the same thing they did for Jake, uh, Joseph, who was prime minister in Egypt. They wept for him because they loved what he did in providing, protecting, and procuring their family as he brought them into Egypt. And guess what? We're going to discover concerning Moses, they did the same thing. They mourned and grieved over this leader. Interesting. I want to see if you and I can actually retain some love for our sister in spite of this eclipse, this this lipsies that we have here around her death. Point number one, our sister Miriam had a long journey with her little brother. Who is her little brother? Moses. What do you mean, pastor? You may not have remembered, but in Exodus chapter two, verse four, and then we're going to look at verse seven. It is Miriam that is the one that's supervising Moses when he's in that little bushel in that little basket on the river. That's big sister Miriam. Now look at what the text says. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. So she's standing there in, um, in cooperation with her mom, who wanted to actually protect Moses from being killed. So mom has done the right thing, and big sister has done the right thing, and so Moses now becomes a motif of the enemy wanting to kill the man-child. Y'all got that? And if you read your Bible carefully in the book of Hebrews, Moses' mother did what she did by faith. That means she wasn't arbitrary. She wasn't emotional. She wasn't secular. She wasn't spiritual. She was biblical. She did what she did by faith. That means you and I can press deeper into it and can understand God gave her a revelation. God told her what to do. God gave her insight into this special child, which you will find all through history. God will do that with that child that is going to be used by God, but is in danger because the enemy has marked them out. Did that make some sense? His mama had faith. His sister had faith. Big sister Miriam is there at the river watching, and she gets to watch how the river current of the Nile moves that child up to an area where providence has it that Pharaoh's daughter finds the baby, right? Look over at verse seven. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter. This is Miriam talking. Y'all got that? This is Miriam talking. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for thee? Look at how God is working. Look at how God is working because Moses is designated to be the deliverer. So God is showing us the, the, what we would call the narrative motif of protecting the child. Same thing happened to Jesus, Joash, Josiah, and many people throughout history. I love this. She's not only watching her little brother go down the river, now she is using her wit to help her little brother return to her mother, his mother, to be nursed by God. You better give Miriam some. It's so very clear. So Miriam secures her little brother back in the arms of her mother, even though now the little brother is adopted by Pharaoh's household. They get to supervise his growth. This is where I told you a few weeks back where we're going now in Numbers chapter 14, but we're not going going there quite yet. This is where I told you a few weeks back that um, Miriam and Aaron really didn't have any right to think that Moses was some kind of... uh, spoon-fed child. Remember, they, they really broke 
uh, a cardinal rule, didn't they? This is Numbers chapter 12. You know that they really broke a, chapter 13. They really broke a cardinal rule when they played uh, discrimination and racism with Moses and his wife. Y'all know that. Right. We'll we'll tap on that in just a bit because it is the first foolish act that uh, is exhibited by Miriam. But take where we are in Moses being protected for 40 years. Then he goes into the wilderness for 40 years. Moses lives to be what? 80 years old, which means Sister Miriam is at least 85, 87 years old. Did y'all get that? Because according to Exodus 6, Moses is 80 when God calls him. Aaron is 83 when God calls him, which means Miriam has to be older than both of them. I know this is tough because y'all got to do math, but welcome to Bible study. And so we have Aaron and Moses at the beginning of their Exodus ministry at 80 and 83 years old and Miriam probably 87 or 88. They're up there already, aren't they? But they are even more aged now in the account that we're dealing with. But before we get there, look at Numbers 15, verse 20. Look at Numbers 15, 20. Miriam is rejoicing with her little brother and then her her middle brother as God has providentially kept them from the time of Moses' birth to his full age, his return from the wilderness and God delivering all of the children of Israel out of Egypt. She has something to be thankful for, does she not? God has a purpose for Miriam. And now, I'm sorry, this is going to be Exodus chapter 15, verse 20. Exodus 15, 20, if I'm getting my numbers right. Yes, this is the time the children of Israel came through the Red Sea and they start singing and dancing and shouting to the Lord and calling him a man of war. And notice what Miriam does. She get all of the sisters together with tambourines ready to sing unto God. And Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with what? Very prodigious expression of thankfulness to God for him delivering his people out of Egypt. And she's leading the worship, is she not? And her little brother, who is the head of the deliverance, responds in the next verse. Look at it. Look at verse 21. Notice what it says. And Miriam answered them, sing ye to the Lord, for he had triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. What a great song of triumph. Verse 22. Look at verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness. When you look at Exodus chapter 15, you see an antiphony between Moses and Miriam and Aaron and the deliverance of the people of God. This is a family affair. Y'all got that? The the Levitical family, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam are the family that God is using to bring Israel out. I just want you to capture that because things now are going to change. Look at Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Let's be corrected. We can be super petty even though we are God's precious servants. Did that make some sense? We can be super carnal, super petty, super narrow-minded, Trapped by horizontal dilemmas, even though we are God's precious servants. And, and what's, what's the purpose of being God's precious servants if you don't act like it? Solomon said, I am beholding servants riding haughtily like kings 
and kings walking like slaves. That's getting things backwards, isn't it? When the when the arrogant and pompous are acting like leaders. See, there I go talking about our government again. And then the people on that really should be in positions of leadership. They are walking in humility because they don't know how to actually walk in their authority. Am I making sense? This is the time I'm living in. And Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. And I said, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? But there you go. Here we are. I'm telling you, nothing new under the sun. You want to pit people against people? Pit them against the color of their skin. Pit them against their ethnic group. Pit them against their socioeconomic distinctions. Pit them against their gender. Pit, pit, pit. That's the Marxist agenda. And Marx was a Jew. Please understand that. A diabolical, demon-filled Jew who hated God. And he wrote articles under inspiration of the devil that have been working marvelously up to this moment. Divisions of these kind are petty. Right? God does not look on the outward man. He always judges the heart. And you and I will get that one day. We always fall prey to face, grace, and race. A twisting of the face doctrine, a twisting of the grace doctrine, and a twisting of the race doctrine. We always fall prey to that. Like somehow those things matter. They do not matter. And one day we'll get it. Listen, one day either God's going to make it that all of us from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue are going to know how to walk and honor each other on an equal footing or the devil will. Because his goal is to mimic God. So he's going to have a people group from every nation, kindred, tongue, and then beyond because he wants to destroy the Imago Dei man and the organic human being and move us all into androgynous artificial intelligence hybrid. That's his goal. Are you hearing me? And he loves to create pseudo uh, multicultural paradigms that make it look like it's the gospel. But the only way that you can have it is for you to abandon the gospel. Did you hear what I just said? Multiculturalism, apart from Christ, is demonic. Every multicultural paradigm says you got to get rid of the Bible, you got to get rid of morals, you got to get rid of ethics, you got to get rid of boundaries, you got to get rid of structure in order for everybody to get along. The devil is a liar and the truth is not in him. All right, let me keep going because you, you need to understand that. So what I say under sub point B is a, a fatal act of foolish jealousy. Why? Because... Aaron and Miriam, right along with Moses, should have been able to enjoy putting their foot on the promised land. But the rebellion against God is going to teach you and I something theologically that we can't avoid because we're Christians and we believe this truth when we get there. So point C, a quiet, non-celebratory what? Departure. A quiet, non-celebratory departure. This is what I was stating to you in Numbers 20, 29. Aaron is celebrated. And Deuteronomy 34, verse 8, pull that up. Deuteronomy 34, verse 8. Guess who celebrated? Moses is celebrated. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy 34, verse 8. And the children of Israel did what? The children of Israel did what? These same knucklehead people that have been complaining all this time in the wilderness, now going to weep. But that's what Jesus said. The wicked rulers of Israel did to the prophets. While the prophets were alive, alive, they maligned them, they persecuted them, they beat them, they ran them off, they killed them. And then when they died, they garnished their sepulchers and worshipped them in a hypocritical sense of honor. 
Am I making some sense? Right? You want to be honored? Tell the truth and let them kill you. That's exactly right. And so what's going on here is very, very, very curious. It's okay. Moses is going to be honored too. The, the example that I want to give you to take away from point number one, this will help you in terms of a New Testament application, is that the humility before honor is the idea that you and I have to die before we live. The humility before honor is the idea that you and I have to die before we live. The Bible's very clear. Except you humble yourself and become like a little child, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of God. The Bible's clear, except you be born again, which uh, Nicodemus did not capture at the uh, acute theological level, but he understood it by implication. Shall I go into my mother's womb again? Well, in a spiritual way, yes, you must. You must die in your flesh and be born again so that you're quickened by the spirit and become newborn babes in order to be part of the kingdom of God and children of the Jerusalem, which is above. Am I making sense? And so the New Testament doctrine in the book of Romans makes it very clear. The carnal mind is enmity against God. I get it. All these people dying in the wilderness are a metaphor of fleshly carnal people. Right. Flesh and blood will not enter the kingdom of God. First Corinthians 15. Y'all keeping up with me? I'm moving quickly for time's sake. But you should know your Bible. These are axioms in your Bible. Men and women that go to heaven are men and women who are chosen in Christ. Men and women who are born again. Men and women who have the spirit of God. The carnal man, the fleshly man, his destiny is hell because he walks contrary to God. So when you and I are dealing with a world full of people today that are persistently opposing biblical truth and the truth claims of Christ, you know what you're dealing with? You're dealing with a cane. You're dealing with an Esau. You're dealing with an Ishmael. You're dealing with an Absalom. You're dealing with a Judas. You're dealing with, as Paul put it, Alexander the coppersmith and many others who put on a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Y'all keeping up with me? That's the world I live in. So you're going to meet these carnal people in church too. They're going to be in your family as well. We have to reconcile that we'll have family members who never ever walk vertically. Never, ever capture the vision that God is laying out. Never, ever stand on God's side of the equation. And the enemy is going to see to it. See, the goal of the enemy is to keep you in the Hatfield and and McCoy battle. It's always to keep you there. Are y'all hearing me? So every neo-Marxist divisive conflict narrative, whether it's a conflict between a husband and a wife or parents and the children or boys and girls or blacks and whites or this and that. All of that is his work to distract you from the unity that's found in God. Can I get an amen? amen? It's important for you to know that because what I capt- what I am observing is that we love the flesh. We love the flesh to kill each other because it's all about us. I'm sorry, it's just true. You're looking at stupidity over in Palestine right now. You're looking at stupidity there. Aren't you looking at stupidity there? It's insanity, but it's stupidity. But let's widen the lens. It's happening in Africa. It's happening in China. It's happening in Iran. All right. So so don't let your media create fictitious lines in your mind like many of our European imperialists did creating fictitious lines in different countries to turn different people who are the same ethnic group into enemies. And then they want to come and stick a microphone in your face and say, who you for? Who you against? 
May I help you? Tell them like Jesus told Joshua, I'm the captain of the Lord's army. I'm not for you or them. Now, who you with? Now, who you with? Now, who are you with? Am I making some sense? I'm not left or right. I'm vertical. My citizenship is in heaven where the Lord is. It'll come home one day. It'll come home one day. We're dealing with the death of the flesh and God, God is not mocked whatsoever man sows. So you, you listen, this is a universal principle. I'm sorry. This is a universal principle. You, you're not going up because of the color of your skin. You might go down because of it, but you certainly ain't going up. It's just important for you to get that because to be proud outside of being proud in the Lord is the most insane character you could have. It's as dumb as a dodo bird. If you sow to the flesh, you shall reap of the flesh corruption. This is what Israel is experiencing as God transitioned them. Point number two, it's time to go. The delusion of the what? Patriarchs. The delusion of the patriarchs. I'm in verse eight. I'm going through verse 12 and we're going to pick up thinking through before we deal with our last point. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall what? Shall live. Are y'all there with me? Uh Uh-uh, I done jumped ahead. I'll deal with that next week. I'm glad you didn't say yeah, because we would have two different Bibles. Verse verse 7, I'm going to, no, verse 6, let me start there. Verse six, and Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and they fell upon their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. And and so, you know, this is a repeated narrative paradigm. Israel complains. They come to Moses and Aaron. Aaron and Moses fall on their face. God shows up. Is that right? That's an application. That's a principle of application for you. Okay, that's a principle of application. Go to your heavenly father, fall on your face and seek him for answers. That's what Moses and Aaron are doing. So, so far, so good, because Moses and Aaron right now for just this moment are not taking it personal. See, the struggle has been to take personal when someone is coming to you and putting pressure on you when it's your position to do something. See, the children of Israel are simply coming and complaining to Moses and Aaron about their condition. Is he not, are they not? And, and so they're not being irrational. The wilderness of Zen is a horrible, dry, wretched place. The wilderness of Zen is extremely barren and parched. The water is extremely minimal at that time. We can argue with archaeologists that like to reconfigurate the historical narrative of scripture for all kinds of reasons. But the reality is, is that it wasn't enough water for those 1.5 million people. Not only that, they are in a wilderness where it is plagued with vipers, with hostile, aggressive serpents. That's chapter 21. That's what we're going to deal with tomorrow. So on the one hand, you're in the driest area in the desert. And on the other hand, you're sleeping with snakes. That's pretty much of a trial, is it not? That'll get to your head, won't it? Right. I told you, though, and these are metaphors. The enemy is going to make you uncomfortable the closer you get to the promise. And if you don't know how to be insulated 
by God's grace, you won't be able to endure a world where they're going to challenge you significantly, even to your mortal harm. I don't know if I'm talking to anybody here today because you and I have lived so comfortably free from any of the kind of disruptions we're reading about in the news today. I think I'm dealing with a whole group of careless human beings in America. I'm thinking I'm dealing with men and women that actually don't believe. See, because here's the mistake our brothers and sisters in Palestine made. Y'all ready? Not in just in Palestine, but Israel, because if we got to divide it because people get crazy over it. Israel was careless and carelessness is rooted in presumption, but we're even more careless than Israel. This is why I told the saints on Friday, do you see what you see? Because what you see is about us as well as about them. And the Bible lays out these arguments around careless people because God told them never to be careless. And Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24, beware of men. And he told us to watch, always watch. At a time when you think not, the thief is coming to break in and steal. And he will never come while you're awake. That is the law of theftum. Now, a robber will come and get you when he's sure that you're not carrying your peace. When your friend is not with you, that's when he's going to jump on you. And I, I need to keep moving. But see, here's the reality. You and I are set up because our government is saying you can't walk with your friend. Anybody listening to me, stay with me for a moment. And our constitution was predicated upon everyone being able to defend themselves against crazy, against crazy government. And your brothers and sisters over in Israel have already been wrapped up in socialism up the yang yang. They are not a democracy. They are a socialist country with hybrid categories that are so intra contradictory. It's not even funny. Your media is not telling you the truth. They set those poor people up to think somehow they were in nirvana or utopia which nothing can be further from the truth when your sworn enemies are just a fence away from you. So why don't you have your friend with you? See what our government wants to do? Set you up for the same thing. So I, should, I shouldn't even be going there, but it's, it's factually true. We are careless people because we're not trusting God. We're trusting government. The delusion of the patriarch. Look at it in verse, uh, verse 7. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Take the rod and gather thou the assembly together, you and Aaron, your brother, and speak unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth water you and you shall bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. The text goes on to say, and Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he had commanded. May I just pause and just kind of be sensitive to the context. This is the same rod that Moses and Aaron used to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. This is the same rod that Moses lifted up to defeat the Amalekites. This is the same rod that God told Aaron to lay before him, which rod budded. It was to be laid up before the Lord. That's why Moses came and got it again. Before the Lord is always before the Holy of Holies, before the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God communes with his people. Exodus 25. Did y'all get what I just said? Whenever you read before the Lord, it's not a, an a geographical context. We're dealing with the Old Testament paradigm and shadow and metaphor. The Lord is to be met in his holy temple. 
So Moses and Aaron are going before the Lord at the temple and the rod is before the Ark of the Covenant as it ought to be. Take this rod because I'm going to speak now with great clarity to the people. That makes sense, right? All right, here's a lesson we're getting ready to learn. This is a lesson about the use of instruments in the hand of God. This has to be captured again because God knows what he's about to do. It's important for you to capture. This is just not about a bunch of complaining children. Remember, I told you that God knows he's about to move them into the promised land. So God has to clean house. And as he cleans house, he's going to educate because God's always educating. He educates when he sanctifies and kills a bunch of people because God's always sanctifying. There are people that are going to be sanctified, meaning when God moves providentially, like he did a few chapters ago with destroying Korah, Dathan and Abiram and the 250 princes. Remember, he said, I will be sanctified in them. Sanctification comes when you and I see God's hand move and it brings us to the place where we go. That's God working. Because you see what human beings will do? They will attribute everything to anything and everything else but God. We got a bunch of atheist Christians in the world. Don't you hear them? I hear them all the time. They say they're Christian, but they're atheists. They'll talk about science and they'll talk about politics and they'll talk about this and they'll talk about that. You won't hear them saying God did this. They'll do it even with the presidency. I've told you that before. You know, Biden is of the devil. Trump is of God. No, God's over both of them. You need to know that God raises up the basis of men to rules over the kingdoms. And what you and I need to know is what God is up to when he does what he does. And so here we have a situation where God wants to now teach Israel because the new group is about to go into the promised land and they've got to get certain things right. I love this. I love this. Notice what the text says. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as was commanded. Verse 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them now, hear now ye rebels. Now he was telling the truth. <laughs> he was telling the truth. Okay, so as I told you, this is the second time that Moses is at the brink of his deportment. The first time was in Numbers 11. Remember, they were complaining back at that time. And and Moses recognized he was angry enough to agree with God to destroy Israel, and he knew that was wrong. See, the enemy wants you to be a hater. The enemy wants you to be a killer. The enemy wants you to be a Cain and not an Abel. Did y'all hear what I just said? This is how you know you're trapped by politics. When you'd rather kill your brother than keep your brother. Am I my brother's keeper? If you're not, you're your brother's killer. There's no in between. Either I'm keeping my brother in the truth, walking in love, or I'm killing my brother by either tacit silence out of cowardness Or I am putting my hands to his or her death as well. This is why you don't want to get caught up in the Kafka trap. Okay, you don't want to get the either or. Are you for Palestine or are you for Israel? That's a Kafka trap. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If you got what I said, say amen. amen. You better overcome politics in a hurry. You're not obligated to buy into the faulty bifurcation of either or. Thinking people get to say, now hold on, is that the only choice I got? Mm-hmm. 
Did that come from God? Right. Like if it didn't come from God, I do get to say, can I take a minute to think about that? And the Bible tells me he that is hasty with his feet, with the speech is going to sin. He that speaks before he hears the whole matter, it is folly and shame to him. This is why you don't want to be wrapped up in politics. You want to be pious, not political. Pious means you take your time and think it through. Because God is the one you got to answer for when you make a decision. You don't just lean in emotionally because a bunch of other people are taking a position. You may even feel inclined to believe a people group, but you don't get to commit until you have enough data and information to make sure you're on the Lord's side. Did that make some sense? Right. The polls wouldn't move that quick if we had thinking people. But you see, they know how to manipulate you and get you to respond emotionally and and precipitously. That is being quick to the judgment. But the Proverbs is clear. He that is slow to anger is stronger than a man with an armed city. When you are slow to anger, you are carrying the attributes of God. Our God is slow to anger. When you're slow to anger, it proves you're not a fool. Fools are quick to be angry. Like they got the whole matter wrapped up. Am I making some sense? I'm teaching today. Am I teaching today? Are you getting it? Why? Fools are, fools are. And it's really important because that's what fools like to do. They like to get out in front of you because they like to get the applaud of having the answer. Problem is, the answer ain't always right. Just because you're first doesn't mean your answer is right. I love the turtle rather than the hare. That'll come home in a minute. Point number two then, notice what it says over in verse 11 and 12. And Moses lifted up his hand and with his rod, he smote the rock twice and the water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their beasts also. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron because you did not believe me to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I gave them. Right then and there, Moses and Aaron are doomed. That's how serious God was about that. Did y'all hear what I just stated? You, in other words, I can shorten this down for people that have the heebie-jeebies around long, protracted, you know, clauses and sentences. Here's what God said. You too. You too. You too are going to die in the wilderness. You too are going to perish here. You too, just like the other 38 years ago. You too now. Did y'all get that? It was not a certainty that Aaron was going to die in the wilderness. It wasn't a certainty that Moses was, but now they got to die. And and my argument is valid because as you read the scriptures, God will continually remind them going forward. This is the reason why you are not going over into the promised land because of what you did right here. Not what they did last week. Not what Aaron did with the golden calf, but what they did right here. This tells me a lot about how careful we need to be when we get old. Tells me a lot about how careful we need to be when we, young people are stupid. They need wisdom all the time when they're young because they're operating out of strength, not out of wisdom. You need a good upline, young people. And you need to be humble enough to know how to go to smart upline people to help you broaden your periphery so you can have enough choices to make right decisions. Can I get an amen? Right. But the problem with young people is kind of like what we got going on in our country today. You don't have a lot of wise old people. You got a lot of ignorant old people, a lot of foolish old people. 
They did not grow up. So often they can't help a young person. And a young person is fit to be tired because their goal is to matriculate up. But they can only get up there on the pedestal of wiser people. The rung of the ladder is tradition. It's learning from the elders in order to ascend up. You don't get there any other way. It is the job of the old people to repent, take what they learn, organize it, prioritize it, and share it with the young people so they can avoid wandering in the desert for 40 years themselves. That's their job. You wonder why, well, what am I doing today? I'm 790 years old. What am I doing here today? You need to organize your thoughts and go outside and find a young man and just speak a little bit of wisdom to him. Speak just a little bit of wisdom. I can talk to you a long time about how God kept me through older men. Just one little word from an older person can shift the trajectory for a young man. One little wise word can keep him out of a whole slew of problems. And I shouldn't have to say the same thing with women. It really does amount to a a famine in the land around wiser men and wiser older women, too. I'm sorry to say, ask your young daughters. They'll let you know. They can hardly find older, wiser women that can help them navigate what it means to be truly a wise woman in this crazy world. See, the devil knows how to steal, kill, and destroy. Does he not? He knows how to steal your time, steal your experiences, steal your identity, so you can't pass it down. Because you're too busy trying to look cute like the young girls. Three subpoints I want to deal with. This was remarkable to me. Subpoint A, let them see the source. Do y'all see that? Let them see the source. This is the first thing I want to grapple with you. You and I know we're dealing with a recapitulation principle. I've taught this church this before. Many times in your Bible, events will have their what we would call their first mention where they first started. And then the principle will be repeated over and over because the overall paradigm is the lesson such as Cain and Abel, such as Jacob and Esau, such as Isaac and Jacob. Does that make some sense? The, the brothers at odds who are children in the room, such as uh, Perez and uh, his other brother, uh, Pharaoh, who were the children of, um, of uh, Tamar under Judah. These conflicts are there, okay? They're there to teach you and I that one, even though we're twins, one may be of God, the other may not be of God. And you got to understand a brother in many ways are often uh, made for adversity. They're not going to always love you because they're going to have their own selfish agenda. That might be you and that may have been you if, if I'm making some sense. So your Bible will give you these recapitulation events. But whenever they recapitulate, when they reoccur again, they are expanded and they are modified slightly enough for them to be new. So here is what God had said to Moses. Look at it strictly in verse eight. Take the rod, gather thou the assembly together, Aaron and your brother, and do what? Speak ye unto the rock, clause A, clause A, clause B, in their eyes. Did you get that? Now I actually have two clues that differentiate the first event of the water in the rock in Exodus chapter 16 and where we are now. In our first event, remember I told you that the children of Israel were nowhere around when God brought water out of the rock. Do you guys remember that? 
I need to show it to you just because you and I need to learn how God works. So we're going back to Exodus 17, verse five through seven. We need to get ready for a gospel truth to help you understand the Old Testament is about Jesus in a grand way. Verse five. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people. Moses is your shepherd. The people are behind. Y'all got that? And take with you the elders of Israel. This is where I talked to you guys before about the elders of Israel and Moses now are demonstrating a hierarchy over the people. And they're going before them like shepherd that leads sheep, right? Sheep don't lead the shepherd. Sheep follow the shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And so they were to follow Moses from afar off. He said, take the rod and wherewith you may do what? Uh, Wherewith you smote the river, that is the uh, Red Sea, take in thy hand and go. Look at verse six. I want you to see the narrative. Here it is. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb. There it is, the first rock scenario, right? Here we have Israel and the leaders going up to the rock. The people have stayed behind. Y'all got that? They are not ascending up that hill to that rock. Only Moses and, and the people and the elders. And notice what God says. I will stand upon the rock. Y'all got that? Another clue. We're dealing with the second person, not the first person or the third person. Who is the second person? The Lord Jesus. Who is he? The invisible Yahweh. Who is he? The angel of the Lord. Who is he? The pre-incarnate Christ. Why? He's the one that exercises mobility all through the Old Testament. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of who? Me, saith the Lord. So Jesus is standing on the rock, is he not? Because we already know Paul has told us that rock is Christ. We already know it. Paul understood the theology I'm sharing with you. So Jesus is coming down because Jesus is the one that has an intimate relationship with Moses. I told you that Moses knew Jesus. Jesus is the one hanging out with Moses, leading him, guiding him, instructing him. And so now look at the account. Notice what it says. He says, now you shall smite the rock upon which I will stand and there shall come out water that the people may what? God is good. If you ask for drink, he will give it to you. Keep that principle because that's coming home in a minute. Notice what it says. And Moses did so in the sight of all Israel. Good. Y'all keeping up now. So you got to read your Bible carefully. Only the elders saw this. Please listen to me. The mystery of the third person represented by the water of life can only be understood when you recognize that the third person is there to represent the second person. And the second person is there to represent the first person. Did y'all get that? This is why Jesus made it very plain concerning the water being a metaphor for the spirit of the living God. The water has always been largely a type of the heavens opening up and the waters being poured down on the people. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Right. But that only happens because of a collaboration between the second and third person. Now, Israel does not know this. All Israel knows is that the leaders went up to a mountain. And then water started coming down. Now, don't get me wrong. They ought to be happy because the Lord has answered their prayer, right? But this is what we mean by the veil being over the heart of Israel even now. That they knew a lot about the law, but they missed Jesus. And what God is doing here is keeping Jesus hid from them. 
and honoring the instrumentality. Didn't I tell you that before? I want you to get it. I'm going to anchor this down. God did this to honor Moses. Isn't that what he said? Moses, I'm going to honor you in their eyes. God did this to honor leadership. Leadership is to be honored when leadership obeys God. Leadership is to be honored and respected and in some cases reverence when leadership obeys God. Did y'all get that? Because leadership is the instrumentality by which the gospel comes to you. You cannot understand God at a sufficient level without teachers. Anybody learning anything today? And you're learning because you're submitting to the process between the source and yourselves through the instrumentality. So when the Bible says it pleased God to save some through the foolishness of preaching, it means God is using an instrument. But God is the source. Am I making some sense? So Israel enjoyed the water coming out there, but they didn't see what we are called to see now. Am I making some sense? And some things can happen in the lives of people who have a view of the instrument but don't know how to get past the instrument to the source. See what I'm getting at? So Israel, the children of Israel, the new children of Israel are up against the promised land. What God wants to do now, which he didn't do for their fathers who were rebellious, he wants to show them the source so that when they get into the promised land, they'll know who the source is. Keeping up with me. Sub point A. Let them see the source. Question, why? To unveil the mystery. What is the mystery? The mystery is that no one can come to the Father except through the Son. The mystery is that Jesus is the mediator between God and man. The mystery is that Jesus is the one that gives us life, not the law. Go back to our text and let's work it through. There's several things I want to work through with this. Going back to our text, chapter uh, number 20, verse, uh, verse uh, 8. Take the rock, gather thou the assembly, you and Aaron, and speak unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth water. And you shall bring to them water out of the rock, so that you shall give the congregation and their, uh, and their beasts drink. And Moses took the rod, verse 10, and Moses and Aaron gathered them together. And here is where we have sub point C, but they lied. Notice what it says in verse 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the Lord. They did what God said, right? And then he spoke. Hear now ye rebels. What is he doing? He's calling their attention to him. Now notice what he says. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? Moses lost his mind. You better park it right there. Right, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's some truth that we got to lay down here before we deal with the gospel. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Did y'all hear what I just said? Now, this goes contrary to almost all of your theological schools of thought. I'm going to press it home again because most of my Christian brothers still are affected by a man-centered doctrine that man is basically good. 
about every year I have to go through the doctrines of grace and teach y'all all over again that you and I are sinners through and through. That not even your will is free apart from the grace of God. I told you the freedom of your will is always to act in rebellion against God. Right. And that's because as we learn from the brothers who broke free from the captivity of Roman Catholicism, the Bible is very clear. Man, by nature, is totally depraved. The only reason you and I do good at any time is when God graces us to do good. Now, stay with me. We will do good and God will allow us to do good or nudge us to do good. And then we will seek to steal his glory. Did you hear what I just said? Am I making some sense? And nothing is worse than becoming God's enemy. And so for me, the Christian church by and large, which is largely what we call free will churches, man-centered churches, man is basically good. He's bad in every way, but he has freedom to choose or not choose God. No, he doesn't. He has freedom to choose, but his choice is always wrong. That's what Romans 8 teaches. That's what Jesus taught in John chapter 8. Do you know your Bible? Jesus says, whoever serves sin is a slave of sin. That's what Jesus said. And when you're outside of Christ, you're a slave of sin. Do you know what that means? The lust of your father you're going to do. You can't help it. What he said in Romans chapter 8, the carnal mind is enmity against God. Do you know what that means? You can never actually truly love God until he breaks the enmity between you and him. Do you guys understand the implications of what I'm saying? Here's what I'm saying. Let me teach you quickly. When you're saved, it's not because of your work plus God's work. See, your work plus God's work, what? What? Won't work at all. And that's vastly most of the churches that we deal with today. Most of the churches you deal with got Jesus almost saving you. But you got to help him. Now, if you got to help Jesus, you become a co-savior. And if you become a co-savior, you get to steal the glory and say, I help Jesus save me. Am I making some sense? Now, either God saved you all by himself, by his grace, and the next thing you know, you were saved. Or you help God save you, and if you tell God no and you go to hell, God's a failure. Because God's trying to save you. Am I making some sense? And you hear it in your churches. God wants to save you today. God's trying to save you today. There are some people who are just going to flat out be saved. Did y'all know that? My sheep hear my voice. Another they will not follow. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Are y'all hearing me? God gets all the glory. I can't make myself born again. I didn't make myself born the first time. Did you? Other wills were in play that brought me into existence. It's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy, that the excellency of our salvation may be of God and not of man, so that no flesh will glory in God's sight. Am I making sense? Once you get into the kingdom by the grace of God and you look up, you save, you say, hallelujah, thank you, Lord. I didn't deserve it. Now you got to fight the sin nature you still have. After grace. Am I making some sense? Because God's got to keep you from being proud of grace. I told you, you can be proud of race and you can be proud of grace. And God says, no, grace humbles you. Grace doesn't make you proud. You are not better than anybody else but by the grace of God. And this is where God is tearing many of us down. 
particularly in religion. You notice how religion don't have anything to say to what's going on in our world today. God's tearing religion down. It's a dumb dog because it's been a greedy dog for so long after materialism. He's not using the church to say anything to the world about what's going on. The church has been humble since BLM. Has it not? BLM moved in and shut down the churches. They all got afraid because somebody accused them of racism. And see, if they were standing solidly on the grace of God, they'd be able to go, yes, I was that. But by the grace of God and the mercy that's in Christ, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, things are becoming new. Things are becoming new. And so what Moses does here is it tells you and I, we can get right up to the finish line as an old person and get stupid and as dumb as the most belligerent unbeliever. Look at it. Must we always watch out for that child of God? Don't tolerate the slightest variation from the reality that you are a wretched human being apart from grace. Did y'all hear me? Don't tolerate false, empty religion telling you you're something better than somebody else. You are not. There's a good likelihood you're 10 times worse than Mussolini. 10 times worse than Stalin and Lenin. But the grace of God. It's really important to know if any man says he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. So now Moses points them to him instead of to God. Moses points the people to him and Aaron instead of pointing the people to God. Now get this. This is really this is the uh, trucks, the, uh, uh, the, the thrust of what Moses is saying, of what God is saying, what God told Moses to do is to actually honor God as the source. Do this in their eyes so that they might sanctify me. And what God was saying to Moses is, Moses, you're the instrument. You're not the source. You're the tool. You're not the maker. You're the creature. You're not the creator. Your job is to, as the instrument, point men and women to the source, which is God. And I love this because God honored Moses as the instrument back in Exodus. Now Moses is to honor God as the source here in Numbers. Some days God's going to honor you because he loves honoring his servant. But you got to still be ready to give him all the glory for it. You got to still be ready to give him all the glory for it. So they lied, didn't they? They lie. Listen to Psalm 106, verse 32 and 33. David wrote about this. You know, there's some events in our life you got to turn into songs. You got to turn into poetry. Sometimes you got to turn it into hip hop. Right? I mean, you just, you just got to make a rap song out of it. You just do. You just do. If you want to glorify God in rap, make sure you turn it into a rap song. Get your theology right, though. Listen to what the psalm says about David. They angered him also at the waters of strife. Who did they anger? Moses. So you see, now we know Moses was really agitated. We, we always knew Moses had a little anger problem. Didn't we know that? We already, we already, see, I told you, even after you saved, you still might have an anger problem. 
You better get a hold of it because it can ruin your life. It can kill you before your time. Get a hold of it. People in America love to play with their pathologies. They love to exalt them. They love to they love to diminish their significance. Sin is painful to you and everybody else. Get a grip on it because it's not good when you let it run unfettered. And God resists the proud. Am I making some sense? He really does. He really does. And as a child of God, if you want to see exaltation, if you want to see honor, really be honest about who you are. Don't lie to people. Just don't lie to people. Okay. that God saved you to tell the truth. The truth shall set you free. Listen to it. They angered him also at the waters of strife so that it went ill with Moses. I should say yes. It went ill with Moses. How ill did it go? Moses, you're not going in. See it? These people who have provoked you, they're going in. You're not going in. You get to stand on the top of Mount Nebo and look over. Mount Pisgah and look over. You get to stand on Moab and look over, but you don't get to go in. Did that make some sense, saints? Now, let me show you the gospel as we close. Point number three is extremely important to get, and I will close it out. I've already started, but you need to know what the gospel is. The gospel is that which Moses distorted in verse 12. He distorted it, and God said, and the Lord spake to Moses in error, because you did what? Believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given you. Moses will not be the one that brings them into the promised land. So the nature of the gospel is very clear and it's laid out in the life of Jesus and in the life of the apostles. By the works of the law, no flesh shall be glorified in the sight of God, justified in the sight of God. Did y'all get that? It's extremely important to get this axiom separates false religion from true religion. This axiom forbids Israel to boast in salvation apart from Messiah, Yeshua, Hashim, where they reject Jesus. They are accepting works religion. Every church that preaches salvation by works is doing what Moses did right here. And what God did in letting Moses fail. It's to teach you and I that we're not saved through Moses. We're only saved through Christ. Isn't that what Jesus says? Moses brought you the law, but grace and truth came through Jesus. His job was to point them to Christ. As God said, point them to me. Moses on this occasion was to be like John the Baptist in John 1:29. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And what God loved about John was when they came to John asking him whether he was the Messiah, he says, no, I am not the Messiah. And Moses tried to take Messiah's place here. Did he not? Sub point A in your outline, the law does not save you. This Romans 3.20. You need to learn these things by heart. Listen to what Romans 3.20 says. It's very clear. Got to keep up with me, sis, because we can go. Listen, therefore, by the what? By the works of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. For by the law is only one thing, the knowledge of sin. Put a little parentheses on that. People will deceive you into thinking just because you have a knowledge of the law, you're saved. This is how church folk hoodwink baby Christians all the time and control them with their knowledge. 
There will be people who will have infinitely more knowledge about the Bible than you, and they're going to hell because they think simply by what they know that they're saved. It's not about what you know, it's about who you know. Who you know. Humbling, isn't it? Subpoint B, subpoint B, look at it again. The law is designed to bring a what? That's the whole sojourn through the wilderness. That's the whole sojourn. Listen to the Bible, it's so clear. Paul lays this out in Romans chapter 4, verse 15. For the law works wrath. Its job is to stir up every sin impulse in you. Did that make some sense? I thank God for this part of the message I'm bringing. Watch this now. This is how you and I know we're sinners and our children are too. Because every time we tell them don't do something, they want to do it. That's the impulse of the snake in us. Did y'all get that? Don't touch that. They try to touch it. Don't do this. They try to do it. And you and I do too. There's an impulse to do that which God says don't do. Right? And what that does is it increases our guilt. And this is why you want to quickly overcome false religion, because either that false religion with works oriented performance based laws are going to make you a hypocrite or it's going to run you out the church. Am I making some sense? And it ought to run you out the church because you need to know that if they're telling you that you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do the other, anything but trust Christ, they're sending you to hell. Now, if you don't understand what I'm saying, then you're probably blinded to the fact that nothing can save you but a person. And this is what Paul says also in Galatians 3, verse 10. Here it is. I'm going to give you a few verses because I want you to get it. In in Galatians 3, verse 10, Galatians 3, verse 10, the apostle says, for as many as are of the works of the law, they are under the what? Did y'all get that? This is why our precious brothers and sisters over there in the Middle East are as blind as a billy goat right now. The blind is a goat. Y'all got that? The blind is a goat. The blind is a goat, and they are cursing other people that live among them, and those other people are cursing them. I know the facts. I got good, honest Jewish brothers who, who know how to admit that their people are just as prejudiced as our people. So don't, don't play that game that all Jews are, you know, they walk in equanimity, and they don't have hostility, and they don't have rage. They do. They're just as trapped by politics as our folks are. I used to say this all the time when the whole thing was around Obama and black people needing to vote for him because he was black. I said, that's the craziest thing on the planet. That's absolutely insane. As a Christian, you are to set all that foolishness aside. You vote for men or women predicated upon what we would call proximal righteousness. And righteousness does not, is not owned by an ethnic group. And sure enough, not black people, because I know black people very well. I know black people very, I know behind closed doors, we cuss people out. We talk bad about them. We are just as racist as anything on the planet. And if you go back to Africa, they will tell you plainly they're that way. I'm looking in the room and I can say this because we have so many ethnic groups. See, I love this because y'all ought to know we ought to stop lying and give God glory in all of y'all different ethnic groups. Every one of your ethnic groups. Every one of your ethnic group, every one of your ethnic group, y'all only about a shade lighter or a shade darker and y'all turn it into race issues. Am I telling the truth? Right. This is a strong delusion. 
It's a strong delusion. And I love this. I'm looking out across this span. And y'all do understand that we are a compilation of Adam and Eve with shades running all across. Y'all understand that? Shades running all across. I'll give you a picture of my grandkids and it's shades running all across. I know the milkman was not the same color as grandma. You need to quit. You need to quit. It's hypocritical and it doesn't help. It is not the gospel. You need to quit. You need to quit. They tried to bring that charge up on Jesus. A child of fornication, a wine bibber and a glutton. All of those kind of things means you don't know the gospel and you have not walked in the humility, which is in Christ. The other thing we need to know, sub point C, the law through the gospel is particularly designed only to point to Christ. Look at Galatians 3.24. I need you to see it. Galatians 3.24. Just lock it in. Listen to what he says. We're in chapter 3, chapter 3.24. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to do what? Right. So when you teach, when you and I teach imperatives, when we teach instructions and injunctions, they're designed to drive you to the solution. Right. Because all along the lines, as you and I are being called to follow all of these protocols, we are never doing them perfectly if we're doing them at all. Right. And according to James, if you sin at one point of the law, you are guilty of the whole law. I hear it. Do you hear it? If a man don't keep the whole law, he's guilty of the whole thing and he's under the curse. You and I are cursed apart from the grace of God that's in Christ. Sub point D, Christ died under the law, what? Once, Galatians chapter four, verses four through six, you should know it here as well. He was born of a woman, made under the law, came into the world at due time, in the fullness of time, the text says, of a woman under the law. Verse five, look at it. Look at it. God sent him, Galatians 4, 5, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of what? So you get moved up under law and you get moved into life. See, the law simply tells you about life, but it can't produce it. Did that make some sense? It can tell you where life is to be found, but it can't give you life. This is the very interesting thing about Paul's argument, because your sons and God, sons of God, God has sent forth his spirit, uh, the spirit of his son in your heart, crying of a father. Our relationship with the father is through the spirit of Christ. You and I need the gospel to help us experience that blessed, that blessed, blessed reality. Here's how Paul argues it over in Galatians four, verse 20. This is why they hated Paul, too, because he made it clear. That you and I only get in through Jesus, not our works. Look at it. Here's what he says. Um, Galatians 3.20, please. 3.20. I know I put four. 3.20. Here's what he says in 3.20. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is what? Keep, keep walking through with me. I want to see if I can uh, pick this up. Is the law then against the promises of God? Because I've basically set up the fact that the law can't save you, right? But the law is not a bifurcation or what we call an ab, uh, a hostile adversary to the gospel. It's a friendly adversary to the gospel because it's a schoolmaster. So like when you're educated and brought into a proper understanding of your nature, of your propensities, of your bents, of your behavior, then that was telling you the truth about you. Because you and I will lie about ourselves. Did you know that? The stats are clear whenever they go around and ask a person, um, how good do you think you are? 90% of people will actually overestimate their own goodness. Have you ever met somebody that said, no, nah, I'm not good at all, man. I'm a ratchet mess. 
If you ever meet them that say that, either they properly understand who they are apart from grace or they're opining in self-negativity, okay? And, and you can be proud about what you are in a negative way too, right? But many, many people will actually oversell themselves because we're proud of who we are and we're afraid to tell the truth about what we really are in Christ. You need grace to tell the truth. Here's what Paul says. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given, which could have what? Given life, verily righteousness would have been by the law. This is where Moses made a big mistake. Shall we fetch water out of the rock for you? See it? This is why I said in our outline, he lied. Did he not lie? He lied because right now, right now, right now, those people in our text believe that Moses could provide the water of life for them. Are y'all with me? That was a flat out lie. You and I are not saved by the works of the law. The purpose for Moses was to, as the lawgiver, point to God, who is the life giver. They were to see by Moses speaking that the rock would have opened up and water would have came out and they would have known that there was a distinction between the instrument and the source. Are y'all keeping up with me? As it is with the gospel. This is why in a lot of our churches, idolatry is everywhere because the man or the woman, which God forbids in the pulpit, is worshiped as if they were God. We got this from our apostate Catholic church, which exalts men to a status of Pope Papa. Am I making some sense? And that's a fallacy because you only have one God and you only have one father and the rest of us are brethren. Am I making some sense? That's what Jesus said. But we love to actually capitulate to man-centered human works religion and bow down and honor instruments rather than recognizing they're simply instruments. You know, and you and I are to honor our mother and father, right? But God is the one that really brought you into existence. He used them, but he brought you into existence. A few more things. Christ died once under the law. You do believe that, right? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Get it again. And this is where Moses made the mistake. Did Christ die twice? Did he die three times? Does he die over and over and over again? Right. And again, listen carefully to me. Whenever you have a Eucharisto um, that suggests and asserts that that bread turns into the body, and that blood, that wine turns into the blood, you are killing Christ over and over and over again. And they know that. They are blatantly contradicting the once for all sacrifice made for any and all who come to him by faith. Did y'all get that? You must reject that claim. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are set apart in the gospel. His one act, almost 2,000 years ago, on Calvary's tree, when he stretched his arms wide and they lifted him high and he said seven words. And the final word he said was, it is finished. Paid for lock, stock and barrel. Every sin I ever committed, am committing and will commit. And not only did it pay for it, it imputed to me every obedience that Christ did from a child to his death on the cross active and passive, so that Christ's righteousness is imputed to me by faith, 
so that when God looks at me, he looks at me not only as if I have not sinned, but I have never, ever, ever sinned. Since Christ never, ever, ever sinned, all of his never, ever, ever sinning is applied to us so that in God's eyes, he can look in eternity past and then in eternity future and go, she has never sinned. He has never sinned because God laid on him the iniquity of us all and we have become the righteousness of God in him. There is no greater gospel on the planet than the gospel of the grace of God in the person of Christ. Yeah, and if you're not excited about that, you haven't seen his glory. You haven't seen his glory if you're not excited about that. For God to take you before you had a being and put you in eternity past in the person of his son, bring you in the time for just a small period of time, let you live like hell to hunt you down by the gospel and bring you into the person of Christ and make you as perfect as he is from here to eternity future. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. And that's a work that only God can do. Yes. So then faith proceeds by hearing and hearing by the word of the living God. The children of Israel would have had to. And I'm done here. There's one little thing that is just so interesting to me, and I love God for it. Moses was to honor God in that moment. He was supposed to honor God. And God still honored Moses. You got it? He still honored his servant. You better think about that, child of God. God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent. God's thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. God won't be like you when you let him down. He won't let you down. Are you hearing me? Somebody ought to give him glory. All right. 